Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I would just like to say from, I didn't want to interrupt the, the 10 o'clock service by saying this, but uh, only one time in all of my years that I spent in non-reformed circles did I ever hear a pastor say this. And I wasn't even there in person to hear it. Uh, I heard it on tape. Uh, the pastor said, um, and, and the whole congregation gasped, the death of Christ saves no one. And everybody just gasps, you know, because he said the unsayable thing, you know. He said the quiet part out loud is what actually happened. Then he says, Jesus' death only makes man savable. Okay, well, that is a belief that, that many hold to, but uh, you just don't hear that very often being said out loud uh, by a pastor. So anyway, I just brought that up. I didn't want to interrupt your class by telling, saying that, Pastor, Pastor Ken. So there you go. In Adam or in Christ, okay, there's only two places to be. There's only two persons to quote um, a scholar, Colin Cruz, and it's on your outline there. In 5, 1 through 11, Paul explained the many blessings that flow from justification by faith. Following this explanation, 5, 12 through 21, he picks up again the main theme running through 3 from 321, and that is that there are no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles in the manner of salvation, or more precisely, as 5, 12 through 21 is concerned, that Christ's death has humanity-wide implications. The only similarity between the act of Christ and the act of, and the act of Adam and the act of Christ is the humanity-wide effects of each one. So I thought I'd just give you that quote to, to get us started here. Uh, one way to read this passage uh, is to see the main idea that everything hinges upon. So let me just read verse 12 and then skip down to 18 and 19. We certainly aren't going to skip those important verses in between, but it does help us see the main idea. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Then verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For if by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so there's the theme of the passage, the thing that we have to keep in mind. We're uh, actually talking similarities and contrasts between Adam and Christ, and then the fact that every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. And of course, we're all born in Adam. We're all born that way. And so, this is what we talk about throughout the passage, the contrast and death is contrasted with life throughout this passage, too. The life given to believers by Christ called the free gift. Well, as we go through here, um, let's just start with the Reformed view. The Reformed view of the passage, uh, which is known as covenant theology, and that's on your outline, too. The Reformed view of the passage, there's a federal headship in Adam, in the garden, he stood in our place. And once he sinned, he doomed himself and all of his descendants to death. The line of Adam 
or we could say his posterity, which is every human being, are in Adam, all die. We were in Adam. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He's writing that to Christians. We were by nature the children of wrath. But uh, our federal head, Adam, represented you and I, and he represented the entire human race, which brings us to point two. We were in Adam when he sinned. Physically, we can say we were all in Adam when he sinned, and uh, this is something much like what the Hebrew writer writes in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And that's the principle. The Hebrew writer brings up this same principle about being like being an Adam. The Hebrew writer is saying when, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek from the spoils of war to give glory to God for the blessings that God had done, uh, we could say that Levi, which of course becomes the priestly tribe, but Levi, one of Abraham's descendants, was actually paying tithes and then later, of course, tithes would be paid to the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. So that's what he's talking about there. Physically, we were all in Adam when he sinned. Third of all, when Adam fell, we fell. He ruined all of mankind that would ever be born when he fell. And uh, when he corrupted himself, we were corrupted. When he died, we died spiritually. And then, of course, literally, that happens too, because sin always leads to death. And then the fourth principle given here is as there is a line of Adam, so there is a line of Christ. In, all, in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There is a line of Christ. We're taken from the line of Adam and put into Christ by adoption. So Adam no longer represents us when we're in Christ. We're taken out of that line. All the merits of Christ are imputed to us and we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Uh, we've been studying this basically, especially in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And then Thomas Goodwin says, in God's sight there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ. And these two men have all their other men hanging at their girdle strings. I didn't change girdle strings, because that's what he said. So <laughs> there you go. A little different back then, but what a quote. It's a tremendous quote there. So, so Adam's one sin brought death upon all. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Okay, so therefore, therefore verse 12 points back to what we've been talking about here. We need to realize we need to be reconciled to God. That's what verse 11 says. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, Okay, so one man plunged us into darkness, uh, one man pulls us out of darkness. And we can say a few things about that. Adam's one sin brought death upon us, sure enough. 
And um, it's really important. And I know we've stressed this a lot. It seems like we, we say it all of the time. But part of the reason we say it all the time is because the Bible talks about it a lot. You know, facts of the matter is that there's God's special creation of Adam and Eve. And to deny that is to deny a cardinal doctrine of the faith. And there are many, I'm sorry to say, uh, most of the world does not believe in a literal Adam and Eve. So the whole thing we're talking about today is, is absolutely destroyed if they are right. Many Christians are embarrassed to talk about Adam and Eve. And then you have liberal theologians that will say something like this. They'll say, well, what a beautiful story is the story of Adam and Eve. You know, we know it's not true. However, there's so many lessons that we learn from this myth that it becomes just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. And, and they can talk about it being wonderful all you want to if you don't believe it's true. It's not a myth, let me put it that way. It's not a myth. There's a literal Adam, a literal Eve, and if there is no Adam, there's no universal fall. And if we've not fallen in Adam, we can't be reconciled to Christ. It's as simple as that. that that's how important this is. If we have not fallen in Adam, we cannot be reconciled to Christ. You can't have a fictional, fictional Adam and then a literal Christ atonement. So Adam's one sin. Adam's one sin. Adam would go on to commit many, many more sins. He lived over 900 years. I can't imagine the amount of sins that he actually committed, but it was this one act that changed everything. And we can see that from verse 14, if you look there, when it talks about the transgression of Adam. And that word transgression or that sin or that offense, whatever your Bible happens to say for that word, it's in the singular. That one transgression of Adam. It was direct disobedience. Direct disobedience of what God had told him. He was basically given one commandment. He was told all the things he needed to do, but he says, do not eat of that tree. A direct command from God that was blatantly and even willfully broken. So you tell children about Adam and Eve, and uh, you gotta be careful sometimes because we still have people named Adam today. Adam in Hebrew simply means man. You know, and Adam is a name that was used. I, I remember my, my grandson, I was preaching, and Adam and Eve came up and talking about Adam and how Adam sinned and and how horrible his sin was, and how terrible it was, and it destroyed all of us, and, and poor Braxton, about five years old, uh, he, after church, he said, Daddy, what did you do? <laughs> you know? And, uh, okay, well, it's different Adam, for sure, no doubt about that. But uh, tell children about the fall, and there'll always be two uh, normal responses. Uh, they will ask, what would have happened if Adam didn't fall? And that's not what we're here to talk about today, but... Uh, in the eternal counsels of God, it was foreordained, of course. But uh, they'll ask that. What would have happened if Adam hadn't sinned? And then they might be so bold as to say, well, if I would have been there, I would not have done that. Okay. Well, childish thing to say. A bit foolish thing to say. But um, the fact of the matter was, we were there in Adam when he sinned. We were. Okay. So then... 
The proof of this is the universal reign of sin. The universal reign of sin is the proof that Adam, actually being in Adam, leads to death. So death passed upon all men, for all sinned. Now, it's true that we're sinners by action, but this passage is teaching that we're accounted sinners in Adam. In fact, five times in this passage, that's made clear. Just look with me really quick through this here. Verse 15, for by the one man's offense many died. Verse 16, for the judgments which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one. Verse 18, therefore as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. And verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. And we're going to talk about that, that many and all in, in just a few minutes, okay? Because I think that's an important part of understanding this passage. Understanding what the many means and what the all means. But we're talking about universal death. The reign of death. Especially the destruction of the human race. Except just think, okay, before the law came, the codified law under Moses... What the one great event that took place that changed the world? Yeah, the flood. The flood came. God saw the wickedness of man's heart and the gross wickedness of all that took place and uh, wiped out humanity except for eight within the ark. And of course the ark is a type of Christ, the safety that's found in Christ. Eight persons left in the ark. Well, the proof that uh, we're all under sin because of Adam is found in verses 13 and 14. I'll read it again. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Let me say this. um, uh, While imputed is a possible translation, Uh, Many translations would not use imputed, and I think rightfully so in this case, because part of uh, imputation has to do with counting or accounting. And it actually is a word that can be used um, for for things like that, transactions being accounted and things like that. So sin is not being reckoned or charged, or we could say invoiced, you know, during this time until God brings the command that actually uh, codifies itself in the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments hadn't been codified yet, but people were still sinning and people were still dying. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him to come. So even though they didn't have a specific absolute command from God, now Ten Commandments are written on the heart of the lost. Okay. They're written on the heart of the lost. So don't, that's not what Paul is saying, that there's nothing there. But it wasn't uh, in stone and it wasn't in print. And uh, men were sinning and dying and sinning and dying. And they may have not uh, eaten a tree that God told Adam not to eat of. But they were sinning 
and they were dying. That's why God says, um, nevertheless, from Adam to Moses, death reigned even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. Adam had a specific sin that he needed to avoid. From Adam to Moses, there was not a specific command to keep, but there was right and wrong. There was true and false. There were those things. But really, we could say that men went to hell because of Adam. Went to hell because of Adam and his transgression. Uh, John Murray, great theologian, says it this way. Number one, Adam had a special revelation from God. Do not eat. That was God's law. Do this and live, or do that and die. And then death reigned because of the broken commandment. And then third of all, all men did not perfectly know the specific commandments before they were revealed through Moses, yet men died anyway. And fourth of all, the only sin that can account for this universality of death is the sin of Adam and our participation in that sin. So chapter 4 emphasized the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Here in chapter 5 we see the imputation of Adam's transgression, which is commonly called original sin, plunged us into total depravity. In other words, we're not sinners just because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners born with a nature enslaved to sin. Okay. So when we keep these categories in our mind, it's very, very helpful. You know. now we believe in evangelism that we should use the law of God. The law does its work to show men their need of a savior, that he's dead in trespasses and sins. He, he needs to see that, he needs to understand that. Uh, you know. And we show men that they are dead in trespasses and sin, they've broken the law of God, and we can actually point them to the law of God, the very things that they've broken. They've trampled his holy commands and set themselves up to be God. It's universally true. There are no exceptions. Because every man, except Christ, who's the second Adam, is in Adam and spiritually dead already. Okay. It isn't like we were alive once and broke one of the Ten Commandments and then we spiritually died. We're born spiritually dead in Adam. And then we continue to actively sin and break God's commandments on our own. There is a theory in Christianity, it's very popular, almost every evangelical I've ever met believes it, but the theory is no one is accountable for sin until they commit their first conscious sinful act. And so you'll hear it put this way by Sunday school teachers. They'll say, you know, oh, when you steal that first cookie, now you've sinned, you know, and you need to repent. Okay, so they'll talk that way about a conscious act that's finally been done. And unknowingly, they're, they're promoting something that, that isn't correct, that isn't right. Uh, there is no age of accountability. There is no time that we come to a point that uh, the person is safe because they haven't sinned yet, and now they've committed their first act of sin, so they're doomed. No, there's no age of accountability. Babies are not born innocent. Just, just talk to any mom, you know, who's got a, a four-month-old baby. Waking you up in the middle of the night crying and screaming and it's, oh, something just horribly, horribly wrong, you know. 
So you go in to check and see what horribly wrong thing. The diapers are fine and the baby's been fed. And yet the baby is squawking and, and crying and won't stop. And Well, what's the baby want? The baby wants what the baby wants. <laughs> the baby wants you. <laughs> Doesn't care that you're sleep deprived and have been sleep deprived for uh, a, a few days. You know, The baby wants you. We love our babies. Our babies are wonderful. And uh, God is, is so good to give babies to young moms and dads. <laughs> okay. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Abraham and Sarah maybe being the example, the, the exception to the rule. But there's a reason that it's the young people that, that have the babies and have the strength to do that, you know. Well, it's not true that babies are innocent and then become sinners. It's not true. It's in Adam or in Christ. And um, as I say that, um, there's another doctrine that I personally do not care for. It's the doctrine of infant damnation. Um, I don't think it's true that, that babies or those mentally incapacitated are necessarily lost because uh, our confession actually deals with this issue. Uh, when I've um, interviewed churches over the years um, about you know, their exceptions to the confession, uh, there's two exceptions that, that many churches take. They'll say 10.3, we don't believe in chapter 10, paragraph 3, and uh, we don't believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. And so those would be two things that are taken. Those things are usually easily dealt with because really they do believe in 10.3 and and they do believe that Pope is at least un-Antichrist, uh, which I believe is, is the case. But, um, you know, we leave this in God's hand. Our confession says in 10.3, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. And then it goes on to say the same for the mentally handicapped persons who are incapable of being called by the ministry of the Word. And so we'll leave this in God's hand. The judge of all the earth will do right, and he's the one that ordains our birth and our death. And even when these little ones die in the womb or, or, or die as little ones, he's ordained that too. And I, I, have, I feel I have authority to say that because I had that happen to me. Had a, a little one die at age 52 days. Well, what am I going to say? You know, I could spend my life grieving and, and wondering and worrying about a little Stephen's soul, or I can trust God and say, God's going to do what's right. I can trust him. He's wiser than I am. He's kinder than I am. He's the one that ordained what happened. I'll choose to trust Christ, choose to trust God. It's difficult to use a little one, difficult to lose a little one. It's, it's, it's very hard. Or to care for one who's, who's mentally incapable of understanding. That, that's very, very hard, you know. But uh, we can trust God, knowing the judge of all the earth to do right. And we get to heaven. We'll see. We'll see there. So, Adam as a type of Christ is where we go next. Adam as a type of Christ. And it says that at the end of verse 14. Who is a type of him who was to come. Well, I should finish my thought. Whenever we would talk to churches that were trying to join our association, 
uh, we would then say, well, do you notice it says in 10.3, in elect infants, dying in infancy? Are you trying to say there's no such thing as an elect infant? Well, well, not really saying that. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, let's, let's, maybe you don't disagree with the confession then, you know. And are you saying the Pope is, is not an antichrist? Well, well, no. We're, we've, every false religion, uh, you know, is headed up by antichrist. But that's a whole other subject. Okay, back to the at hand. 14, at the end of the, of the verse here who is a type of him who was to come. Now, we ask ourselves, um, well, the rest of the passage actually talks about uh, how they're dissimilar instead of similar. But he was a type, and then there's the antitype, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, doing what Adam was incapable of doing and failed miserably. But Adam was made in the image of God. Now, not just men are made in the image of God. I, I almost hesitate to even have to say that. I hope you would know that we don't believe that. Men and women are made in the image of God, okay? But Adam is the representative head, created in God's image. And in fact, he's even called, well, you know, uh, he's even called the son of God in the book of Luke and in the book of Genesis, called the son of God. You know, well, uh, in, in Genesis 5.1, when we're going through the, the various um, genealogies, okay? Well, he was a direct, a direct creation of God himself, you know. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of God, okay? So you see the difference? He's the image of the invisible God, okay? And Adam was God's son, like I said. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God, okay? But there is a similarity here. There was a threefold office. And I got this from the book you loaned me, Doug. <laughs> Dr. Fesco tells us this. There was a threefold office of Adam. He was, um, you know, a prophet, priest, and king. As a king, he ruled the earth. He was given dominion over everything. Okay. As a priest, he lived in the temple garden and was to minister that way. And then as a prophet, well, of course, um, you know, he was um, held to that same idea of uh, actually being able to teach and show others the things of God, uh, although all the other was was Eve. Didn't live long enough to have a, pro a progeny. Okay. And the Lord Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, through the word of God that he speaks to us, priest in that he is not only the sacrifice, but he's the priest that administers the sacrifice. And king, because he is the Lord Jesus Christ, king of kings and Lord of lords. So we do see a correlation here that's being talked about. And um, he's a type of Christ in regards to imputation too because Adam was the grounds of our condemnation. And um, I'll put that on your outline. Adam versus Christ. And with Adam, there is, and this part I wanted to put in there, and I see I forgot to do it. 
Um, Adam, sin, condemnation, and death should be under Adam there. And Christ is righteousness, justification, and life. So I just kind of missed that last night when I was making up the outline there. But uh, you can even write that in if you want to yourself. Under Adam is sin, condemnation, and death. And then under Christ, it's righteousness, justification, and life. And uh, men are not justified by acting righteously. Men are not condemned just by actively sinning. We're dead already, and we sin because we are spiritually dead. We disobey because we're in Adam. The lost man hates God. He runs from God. He may tell you all day long that that's not true. And one of the things I hear nowadays more often than ever before, and you probably do too, is somebody saying, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay. Well, that's a nice new age talk for I'm lost and, and running from God. <laughs> Just is really what it is. Left to yourself, you would gladly have had God leave you alone. You'd go on and do your own thing. You'd like to have your conscience left alone. Man is the ultimate selfish creature. And in our day, that's condoned and even allowed because you have to be good to yourself. You have to love yourself. You have to accept yourself. Well, these are all the buzzwords that go flying around. Oh, your problem isn't anything except that you have a poor self-image. If only you could think better of yourself and higher of yourself and greater of yourself, things would be so much better. And uh, bad advice. Bad advice from psychologists and such like that. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, we think about ourselves more than we think about anything else. Our comfort, our safety, whatever it happens to be, we want to be taken care of, you know, and make sure that we, we're taken care of. Well, how does this impact us? Just one thing, just think about this. What, what if a wife thinks, what am I going to do if my husband stops loving me? What am I going to do, you know? And, and we just think about what if, what if, what if? How is this going to impact me? What will happen to me? Now, going down to verse 15, I'm gonna do something a little different than I normally would do um, because I think it reads a, a little difficult. And whatever translation you have, um, I want to read it in the New King James. You can follow along in the translation you have. And then I'm going to read it in two other translations. And I want you to follow along each time I read those other translations. And I think it'll explain what's actually being said. We'll put it all together and it'll make sense, I believe. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if the one man's offense, 
Oh, sorry. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So it begins with an emphatic negation in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. Okay, so let me read it to you in two translations that I rarely use. Um, I got my reasons for that, but um, some of you might even have this translation. The NIV. The NIV reads, now follow along in your translation that you have as it's translated this way in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And I think that's a really good translation. But now let me read you a paraphrase. A paraphrase is really not a translation. It's at times an over-translation, and it's a, a little too loose uh, with the things that should be said. Um, but um, I'll read you a paraphrase. Here we go. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, follow in your Bible, for the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Okay, so that's a different way of putting it. It's a paraphrase, not a direct translation, but um, I do think that they got it right in that particular place. So anyway, I hope that helps uh, untangle it just a little bit as you follow it along, as you follow it along in your translations and uh, help to clarify it a bit. We could say in verse 15, that we gain more through Christ than we ever lost in Adam. We gain more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. And you can see that from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, when he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, and then the parentheses, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We gain more through Christ than we ever lost in Adam. And then why use the words many and all? Because I think people do get confused uh, that read that. 
And uh, just have to read a little more carefully, read a little differently, I think that is helpful, and understand a little bit more. I, I would, I'm going to venture to guess that you don't get as confused as some do that read this. Okay, the many and the all, you know. Using the terms many and, uh, and all, Paul is not concerned with a numerical value. He's concerned with groups. Okay, the many and the all. Adam's fall, many were made sinners. Who are the many? Everybody that's in Adam, which is everybody. <laughs> okay. And the all. Okay. Uh, so we need to understand that when we're talking about many or all, we're usually talking in ideas of groups instead of every single individual. Now, it can be every in individual, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every individual has sinned. Yes, that's true. You know, but usually many and all have to do with groupings. And sometimes the grouping can be very, very large, like everybody, or sometimes they may be more exclusive about a certain group. Just think about the, the Pharisees and the scribes who wanted to put Jesus to death. And they said, all the world has gone after him. Don't you wish that was true? <laughs> all the world has gone after him. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> okay. They didn't. So this is just the way, this is the way we use language. And the Greek does it, and we do it. And uh, usually it's easily understood. But if we go into something with a preconceived idea, then we can actually miss the theological significance, is what I'm trying to say. So remember, all doesn't usually mean every single individual. It usually means all within a group, and so does many. And we need to take note of the group that the scripture writer is talking about. Okay, so verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You know, and um, obviously if, if all means every single one to all men, okay, then you got universalism, which we know is wrong. We know that's wrong. The scripture does not teach universalism. So we're not talking about numerical extent. He's showing the representative acts of Adam and Christ and how they stand for who they represent. And then verse 19, and that's where I'm going to end today in verse 19, because I want to deal with verses 20 and 21 along with chapter 6. Okay, so we'll be dealing with that next week, Lord willing. But verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And because of justification, our participation in Christ's righteousness is just as real as our participation was in Adam. Okay? Our participation in Christ's righteousness is just as real as it was when we were in Adam and all that he represented. The future tense doesn't mean that justification is an act reserved for the future. It is in the future tense, 
But that's not what Paul is trying to say, you know. Another error that uh, I've come across, future justification. No, it's true that we're saved by Christ's obedience and it will continue to be true for all eternity. It's really another proof that you can't lose your salvation, the truth of the matter. You don't gain it and then lose it, okay. And the only way we could lose our salvation would be if Christ lost his obedience. And how can that happen? You know, it wasn't going to happen while he's on earth. It certainly isn't going to happen when he's in heaven. Absolutely not. So next week we'll deal with the, the rest of the passage, 20 and 21. I think it flows really nicely. Uh, and that's why we can say, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, it, it really comes from the previous two verses there. So death reigned, sin reigned, but Christ reigns. And grace reigns for those that are in Christ. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is his full title, and his full glory can be seen in his full title, Jesus Christ our Lord. And all I'll ask is a simple question from you. Is he the Lord Jesus Christ to you? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've worked through a passage that many have claimed is one of the more difficult passages in all of Scripture. But Lord, if we keep some certain things in our mind and, and know more than just what is in these nine verses, if we keep some certain things in mind, Father, we can, we can see the truth and the wonder of what's happening here and how horrible it is to be in Adam, how wonderful it is to be in Christ. The work that you did for us, we thank you for that. If there's anyone here today that does not know you as the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray they'd fall on their knees and cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. For Father, you will, you will, because no man will do that. He'll find another way or try to find another way to come to you. But when the spirit draws, the knee falls, Father, figuratively speaking, and the mouth confesses, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful thing that is to see people converted and come from darkness to life. And, and Lord, in, in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll get to, to hear testimonies of, of two more, just like we heard just recently from two that uh, confess their faith to you. We'll get to hear two more speak. And then, Father, we'll get to, in a couple of weeks, witness their baptism. These are great things, Father. This is what you do in the lives of sinners. And this is the great exchange. You take our filthy robes that come from being part of Adam's stock. You can call them menstruous rags in other places, Father. You take that and exchange it with the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ the Lord. And Father, I'm well aware of my own sin, but Father, I need to remember that Jesus Christ died for me and Jesus Christ's obedience to you perfectly has been imputed to me. So I will be able to stand before you absolutely clean 
absolutely pure. Father, this is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. But it's what you do in salvation. And we thank you for it. May Jesus Christ be praised. In his name we pray. Amen.